Flat Out Strange from the Other Side of Cinema. I'm Mark Dickerson. And I'm Jeremy Fink. And this is part two of our series Rockin' Real, Music Films of the 60s and 70s. Today we'll be discussing 1968's Head, directed by Bob Rafelson. Hey, hey, we are the monkeys. You know we love to please. A manufactured image with no philosophies. We hope you like our story, although there isn't one. That is to say there's many. That way there is more fun. You've told us you like action and games of many kinds. You like to dance, we like to sing, so let's all lose our minds. We know it doesn't matter, because what you came to see is what we'd love to give you and give it one, two, three. But it may come three, two, one, two, or jump from nine to five. And when you see the end in sight, the beginning may arrive. For those who look for meanings in form as they do fact, we might tell you one thing, but we'd only take it back. Not back like in a box back, not back like in a race, not back so we can keep it, but back in time and space. You say we're manufactured, to that we all agree. So make your choice and we'll rejoice in never being free. Hey, hey, we are the monkeys, we've said it all before. The money's in, we're made of tin, we're here to give you more. The money's in, we're made of tin, we're here to give you more. Okay, so let's let's talk about head. Uh, head is a 1968 American satirical musical adventure film. And it is written by Jack Nicholson and Bob Rafelson, and it's directed by Rafelson. Um, and obviously, Rafelson's you know very famous, uh, very revered director, uh, writer, and producer. He is regarded as one of the founders of the New Hollywood movement in the 1970s. And Jack Nicholson is Jack Nicholson. <laughs> he was just doing his thing around this time. And uh, as me and Jeremy were talking about, he's he's involved with a lot of. Uh, pretty great material around this time um many irons in the fire for him during the during the late mid to late 60s yes he was part of some really cool uh cinematic endeavors some of which i'm sure we'll talk about more in depth on future episodes of cult movie cult and um the and the two writers do show up in a cameo in the movie head as well in a particularly meta moment where they interrupt the scene to discuss filming with them and um to just uh, touch on Rafelson real quick a little bit, um, he was involved with the Monkees as early as the beginning of the 1960s uh, when him and Bert Schneider had formed uh, Ray Burt Productions. And they were trying to get a foot in the door in Hollywood. And uh, basically, they were inspired by, oddly enough, the film that we just talked about <laughs> uh, in our previous episode, A Hard Day's Night, uh, which features the, Be- the Beatles. And they uh, decided to develop you know, a TV series about a fictional rock and roll group. And uh, that group ended up being the monkeys. And um, obviously the, the monkeys, you know, there's a lot you, you could delve into with how they were formed. Um, a lot of people, there's a lot of controversy about whether or not they were real musicians or whatnot, or just, you know, just plain actors. Um, but basically, you know, from the, the TV show uh, sprang the, this film, which is Head. And um, we're going to get into that now. So. Yeah. Okay. so Head is a pretty wild trip. Um, and I say the trip with no pun intended because Jack Nicholson also wrote the movie <laughs> The Trip under Roger Corman, which is a different endeavor entirely. Um, but Head is about as 60s as it gets while also kind of having this satirical edge where it was also making fun of the 60s and everything that was going on at the time, um, which is a little bit of a, a dissonant thing. You know, it's a, it's a little bit strange that it can kind of both be that thing and be mocking it at the same time. But at least in my opinion, I feel like they really actually pulled it off for this movie. Um, and one thing that's important to note about Head is that it was not particularly well received at the time. Um, as many of these cult films, as many of them not. were not. Um, but particularly, what's interesting is just the timing of Head. Is it was a pre-Easy Rider, um, so you know, like these kind of films, 
at the time weren't really mainstream, but the monkeys had enjoyed had enjoyed massive mainstream success up to this point. So this was actually uh, kind of like a, a swan song to their falling apart, mm-hmm. you know, to, to their, their decreasing popularity. Um, but what many people now, looking back on it, consider to be some of the finest work that they ever did. Yeah, actually, now that you bring it up, I was going to uh, bring this up later, but I read an interesting quote from Michael Nesmith from The Monkees, um when they had asked him, I believe it was actually uh, 2012, so pretty fairly recently, um, and if they asked him if he thought making Head was a mistake, and he responded by saying, by the time Head came out, the monkeys were a pariah. There was no confusion about this. It was basically over. Head was a swan song. It was an authentic representation of a phenomenon we were a part of that was winding down. And he went on to say, there were some people in power and not a few critics who thought there was another decision that could have been made, but I believe the movie was an inevitability. There was no other movie to be made that would not have been ghastly under the circumstances. So that really shows um, where they were at. They they were kind of checked out a little bit on the whole monkey thing. Um, Which you can see in the movie, too. And Nesmith even later said... Or I'm sorry, he actually said this at another point as well. Uh, Nesmith called the film The Murder of the Monkeys. Murder of the Monkeys. So that right there definitely tells you how they yeah. felt about it. Yeah, Yeah. You and you can see little remnants of them being checked out in the film. So, so one thing, just because we haven't really talked about plot at all yet, um, is because this is a movie that doesn't really follow any kind of linear or even nonlinear plot. Um, there's, yeah. there's a long monologue uh, right at the beginning of the film, actually, um, there was a, well, not a monologue so much as a, a song that they sang that was kind of a play on their original um, monkey song. Hey, hey, we are the monkeys. You know we love to please a manufactured image with no philosophies. You say you're manu- you say we're manufactured. To that we all agree. So make your choice and we'll rejoice. It's never being free. Hey, hey, we are the monkeys. We said it all before. The money's in. We're made of tin. We're here to give you more. The money's in. We're made of tin. We're here to give you. And then it goes on, and it's interrupted by the footage of a gunshot, and then execution of the Viet, a Viet Cong uh, child killer named I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. I believe it's Gwen Van Lem, but mm-hmm. that's probably horrible. Um, but but you can tell right from the beginning that they're kind of not really there. Um, but another thing that we get right in the beginning is there's there's this kind of weird introduction to the film where they basically say that the beginning is the end, the end is the beginning, and everything in between is this jumbled you know, out of order confusion, mm-hmm. um, which which is kind of the best way to describe this plot. There, there's nothing from A to B mm-hmm. that you could really say this mm-hmm. happened and then this happened and this happened. It's it's kind of just... Um, freewheeling. Yeah, there's this freewheeling trip of, of a little bit of music. There's actually very not as much music as I expected there to be in this film that's actually by the monkeys. A lot of the music is just kind of like filler score... Um, and, and kind of the sound experiments. Um, yeah, but there are, there are some scenes where they, they yeah. do perform uh, music, but it's not the main uh, attraction. No. I wouldn't even say it's second or third. I'd say it's probably fourth or fifth in the pecking order of the most important elements, which is interesting. You know, it, it, it's an Definitely. interesting thing like they, for a band, you know, um, oh, it's essentially a music film to have mm-hmm. so little music in it. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, also similar to A Hard Day's Night, I feel like when the songs come, it's almost like, hey, you know, we're going to play this song now. Okay, now let's get back to the movie. It, mm-hmm. it just kind of feels like, you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like um, the songs are the main focus or that they were even particularly interested in 
in playing the music for mm-hmm. the movie. It kind of feels, you know, it feels like, all right, we're expected to have these moments in it. Although the music in this film for the monkeys, I feel like is pretty different than what they had done before this. Um, yeah. So maybe, you know, with that, they were expanding, you know, w- with the film being sort of an expansion of, of the mind and of where they were at. Um, I think the music is in step with that, which is interesting. Um, but as you said, you know, the movie is essentially a loop. It kind of goes back, you know, it goes back on itself Um the the monkeys continually find themselves stuck, whether it's in a black box or uh, a, an aquarium or a large water tank, like at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, they are just constantly trying to run from this idea of celebrity. And, you know, the, each circumstance they find themselves in, they, they basically just want to get out of it. And um, that's kind of the running gag, I guess, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, for the entire film. Yeah. And well, I think it's interesting noting the aquarium at the end. Um, so, so basically this is going to be very hard to explain. So I would say go watch the movie before, oh, like, like if you it. haven't watched it, <laughs> stop the podcast right now for a minute, yeah. watch it or for an hour and 26 minutes, go watch the movie and then come back because some of the imagery we're going to discuss just won't make any sense. Our, mm-hmm. our description can't do it justice. The movie is on YouTube. Yeah. Um, it is in, on YouTube. in its entirety. Right now it is. It yeah. Was, right now it yeah. is. We'll see how long that lasts. Um, <laughs> So the, the film actually begins with uh, Mickey Dolenz, who is the monkey's drummer, um, jumping off of a bridge uh, after being chased by a, a giant horde of people, which I thought was interesting going back to, now that we've already discussed Hard Day's Night, that, it, that it, they kind of open in the same way with the band being chased, but instead of being chased by adoring fans, they're being <laughs> chased by this, this nightmare nightmarish brigade of surreal individuals you know what that's funny i honestly didn't even make that connection Um, that's really interesting yeah yeah and and but instead of hiding they they have nowhere to hide so they just jump off of a bridge (laughs) um and they land in this big body of water unharmed despite the fact that they jumped easily 150 feet down um but that's also that that sequence that begins there just begins that whole psychedelic feel to the film which is why i actually love that song i think it's yeah probably probably my favorite monkey song because Mm -hmm. it just puts you in that mind frame of like you're gonna go on some like you said you're gonna go on a trip like we're gonna take you you know they i've to my knowledge they had never made a song like that i'm not a huge monkeys fan or am i (laughs) you know actually like you i honestly didn't really listen to them much before this movie Mm -hmm. uh before i saw this movie so i don't you know but from what i had heard the most of the music i had heard had not been like uh, it's called the porpoise song um but uh, i had not heard any music from them like that so when that song begins and he's in the water and it's very slow and dreamlike and the mermaids come it's it's uh with the war extre- ex- the, yeah, extremely they use, surreal yeah it's, yeah they it's, use these it's, kind it's of the tone they sure. use these kind of andy warhol-esque colors where everything becomes distorted and yeah you know yeah. the blues and the greens and they're underwater but it doesn't really look like they're underwater it kind of looks right. more like they're in a lava lamp so it throws um, you right in there. It's yeah, just, you're you know, right in there. It's like, yeah. So, and that's why I love that. Actually, it's probably my favorite part of the whole entire movie. Yeah. Um, well, then there's and, so many parts though that that are kind of like these wild. You know, I mean, there's some really disturbing imagery. Um, yeah, like you like you mentioned the you know the actual footage of someone being shot and yeah that they incorporated in there and that's really powerful though. You know, I think that how that's used uh, mm-hmm. in, in conjunction with a happy sounding you know catchy theme song. That yeah. was already a commentary on itself, you know, and then they put that on in at the end and just to give you that last little bit of a, a sting there. Yeah. Well, and I think looking back on it now today, it's not that surprising. I mean, it, it's surprising because it's a surprising film, but, you know, it's not surprising for us today. Look back because it came from that era. But to people who were fans of the monkeys, you know, this this would be like today if, you know, 
Justin Bieber went out and and made you know <laughs> Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. You know, it's just like it's just like totally yeah. It, it totally doesn't or like One Direction going and you know doing some kind of psychedelic you know making Sergeant well, Peppers. It's like yeah, that just made me think. Actually, is, there's an interesting connection to. Um, a more recent film, Spring Breakers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know how mm-hmm. uh, there was kind of like, you know, what they were, what is known as like teeny bopper celebrities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like Vanessa, who was it? Selena Gomez yeah. and Vanessa Hudgens. And yeah. So Selena Gomez, Vanessa Hudgens um, are in, uh, you know, in that film. And, and basically, uh, you know, you, you had seen them in a way that you never saw them before. And, and so people, you know, celebrities are still doing that mm-hmm. um, to a certain degree. But at this time, I do think that it was, it was probably unlike, anything that people had seen before yeah and, and so and so one one image because you know we think about why the monkeys might have done this and, and it does seem like throughout this film which is something that i'm not sure if it was how much of this came from the members of the band themselves or how much of this came from rafelson or nicholson um but it, it does seem like there is just this burnout of the this commercialism and and the one image to me that really stood out is there's one point where peter tork um is just sitting in in a diner just eating an ice cream cone but he's not really eating it he's just kind of sitting there and this cone is just melting all over and is all over his hands it's really disgusting you can kind of like <laughs> very viscerally feel how sticky and awful it would be but he's just kind of inca- incapacitated you know like just unable to move or do anything and his band is talking to them they're like oh look, come on we got to go do something else and he's just mm-hmm. unable to move because he's locked into this existential crisis and you know, he's not hungry but he he can't throw the ice cream cone out because there are children starving somewhere and it's just like this this really bizarre moment where like he's kind of locked into a role doing what he's supposed to be doing despite his own discomfort. And that seems to be a thing throughout a lot of the movie, both in how we deal with the members of the band who seem to be locked into this, mm-hmm. you know, what are they supposed to be doing um, versus what feels right. And, and, and also in terms of on a bigger global scale, uh, this kind of commercialism... Mm-hmm. This commercially driven society, you know, like there's one point where there's a woman on top of a building threatening to jump off and commit suicide and people below start placing bets as to whether or not she'll do it. And it's mm-hmm. kind of this this weird uh, crossroads between commercial, the, the commercial and the individual and, and how we can't really find a clean balance, which is a pretty radically complicated thing for a pop band to be mm-hmm. talking about. Well existentialism in general i mean uh, mm-hmm. there is heavy existentialism in this film i feel and uh you know like you were mentioning like they're always the monkeys are always confused about where you know where they are their mm-hmm. current situation and they're never able to escape it really so um and they are questioning a lot with this film it seems like and i mean outright you know just like the part that you mentioned i mean they outright question things uh the meaning of life in the film like mm-hmm. you know continually um but above all i do feel like this movie um much like uh, The Beatles' A Hard Day's Night, once again, uh, I feel like Head is a film that expresses the monkey's commentary on celebrity mm-hmm. and their place within it. And um, there's scenes, you know, full of corporate mass marketing, you know, making fun of that. There's t- scenes about media saturation um, and a certain attitude towards, like, the soullessness of the music industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are all running themes throughout the film. Uh, one of the main scenes that sticks out in my mind, and I actually always think of when I think of this movie, is, uh, you know, when he's walking through the desert and he sees... <laughs> the a only Coca-Cola. thing he sees is, yeah, it's almost like a mirage, but it's just a Coca-Cola vending machine uh, mm-hmm. on the top of a hill in the desert. And that just that image, you know, is just, that's that's a great image, I think. 
Yeah, no, it, it really is interesting. Another thing that I thought was interesting is how weirdly predictive of the future this film kind of was, um, especially in this short form jumping around. Um, you know, a, a big image throughout it is, is the, the idea of television and this idea of changing the channel. And I think that, you know, throughout this movie, we see the channel change a lot of times. You know, that's why there's not really one plot. It's almost like watching a really yeah. distract... Like, like, it's watching this uh -huh. movie with a remote, but the remote is making decisions on its own. Um, totally, yeah. It goes into different genres, even. like a, Different genres, a war, a different war settings. Movie or, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to me, that's kind of interesting because, you know, it's, it, it's talking about where the world is moving kind of post... Not post, but right in the thick of the 60s sexual and cultural revolution. Mm -hmm. and, and I really do think that it nailed kind of where we were going in this idea of the short attention spans. Um, there's one part where I forget which character it is, but one of them says, um, we're in a new world who's only preoccupied with amusing itself. Um, which to me, that you know, that's really interesting because that seems a lot closer <laughs> to where, where, we, where we are now because even the tragedies, you know, all the, all the craziness that happens in today's world, at, at the end of the day, what lasts the most is the entertainment value above everything else. You know, culturally, we love watching, you know, tragedy. And, and I think that's why that you maybe see a, a Vietnamese soldier in this film getting shot in the head mm -hmm. right next to a music performance. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's it's like this this back and forth. That juxtaposition, yeah. Yeah, where, where you can't really mm -hmm. separate. And, and there are certain scenes that don't look like they're going to take a dark turn. They, they seem like they're just going to be fun and games and then something dark happens or, 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 mm -hmm. uh, or vice versa. You know, early on in mm -hmm. the movie, there's a scene where all of the, the members of the band are at war, and instead of be really worrying about the fact that they're at war and fighting, they're having this goofy conversation about, you know, a helmet. And, and a football player shows up and gives um, one of the characters a helmet to wear. And it's like, it's, mm -hmm. it's like this juxtaposition of the goofiness and silly entertainment value and, and, and humor juxtaposed with, with this, you know, real-life grim disturbing reality that that they're living in right for such a fun movie i would say that the 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 theme or the overall feeling you're left with is you know a depressing one. Oh, absolutely <laughs> it, it's you know at the end of it there's mm -hmm. they're stuck in a box and they can't get out and it's an endless loop that will continue to eat itself and mm -hmm. uh so that's very interesting because i'm a i'm a huge fan of, of dark comedy and mm -hmm. to me this is you know one big dark comedy because yeah uh, yeah, for that reason alone. I mean, it's it's uh, you know under on the surface it's hey this is the monkeys running around in a crazy uh, drug fueled you know trip of a movie, but really mm -hmm. underneath it all you know there is a deeper meaning to it. Yeah, and and ultimately something they couldn't get themselves uh, out of. It seems like. Yeah. Well, and to me, I would I would I would I would agree that it, it if you're going to try to put this in some kind of genre um, outside of you know the particular genre of '60s psychedelic films, I would also say dark comedy, but I would say much more dark than comedy. Because, because I don't know, at least personally, the way I reacted, I, I didn't really find myself laughing much throughout yeah. this film. It was more kind of like, like when I did laugh, it was more a chuckle. Like, like I laughed when they started making bets on the woman committing suicide or not. But that's not, it, it's funny because I had a discomfort because it's a little like, like it seems so absurd, but it's a little too real at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 what this movie kind of reminded me of um I don't know if you're Mark, if you're an Antonioni fan or not. Yeah, I'm um, familiar with him. Yep. But but he has the he has this one film called Zabriskie Point, um, which is is kind of one of his lesser known films. So it's one I came across from, and yeah, I'm not I haven't seen that one. spoiling anything by talking about this. But at the end of the film, there's just 
Like, like everything's going in a pretty narrative way, and then all of a sudden it just cuts to this building exploding, and, and like food flying out of the building, and there's no reason for this explosion. It's just, and, and to me, that's kind of like what the monkeys are, and, and this movie is doing here. It's like, it, it's the 60s counterculture, but it's just, it, it's just hit a point where it just has to explode. It, it, yeah. it, can, it can no longer be this thing that, that's just being talked about and experienced. It's just this sheer boom of the craziness that no longer makes sense. It, it maybe doesn't even have meaning anymore. It's just this over the top, which which is is kind of interesting to me because this is actually before um, movies really movies from the counterculture became culture. Mm-hmm. You know, this was when this kind of thing was actually still counterculture because Easy Rider hadn't come out. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think Bonnie and Clyde had came out, but it was still it was, it was in its infancy. Mm-hmm. So the, the timing is kind of weird that that this was so critical of something that was just happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently the storylines and the peak moments of the film came from, uh, uh, it all came from a weekend visit um, that the, the band shared with uh, Rafelson and Nicholson. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of just, you know, they were all like at a resort and they were brainstorming into a tape recorder. And that's, you know, obviously under some influence of uh, mm-hmm. drugs, <laughs> most likely yeah. some like, yeah, some, you know, weed or whatever. But, um, you know, that it was interesting to me that from these tapes is, is how they uh, arrange the film. And I think that's part of the reason why this film, and I think this is to its strength, that it is so many different things. Mm-hmm. It, it is a musical film. It is a war film. It is a psychedelic journey film. It's a Western it's, it's a Western. It's uh, you know, it's a comical satire. It's, there's a it's, Maharish character in it. It's like yeah, exactly. So it's it's certainly many things, and it can be different things to different people, which is uh, I think, you know, what a great film can be, mm-hmm. um, and obviously a cult film uh, because you can watch it over and over. I think and see different things in it, and you know, always be entertained by it. So uh, to me, that's part of the definition of a cult film. So I think this definitely is in line with uh, other films that we've discussed. And um, Mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, at this point, we've talked a lot about the themes of the film. Um, I just wanted to dive in a little bit deeper into detail and, and, you know, ask you, Jeremy, uh, were there any moments that stuck out to you? Do you have any favorite moments or moments that didn't play as well for you? Um, No, I mean, nothing that didn't. I would say didn't play as well. I mean, it's kind of a hard thing to define because it's not really in the a narrative. So, so you know, it might not have played well to me, but that doesn't mean it wasn't playing well. Mm. Um, How uh, about any like favorite scenes or yeah. images that stick out to you? So, favorite images and scenes. Obviously, the the ice cream cone was probably my yeah. favorite of the whole movie. That was just like <laughs> th- this subtle sense of dread that was expressed so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, another one that I thought was really particularly interesting that was a really subtle thing was there was one scene where a couple a couple characters were talking and I don't remember the exact words but all of a sudden really quickly in this almost like you know strobe like seizure inducing way the words that they were saying started flashing up on the screen really large <laughs> yeah. like not a subtitle like they took mm-hmm. up the whole screen and that was really interesting to me because mm-hmm. you know like like the, the the representation you know we we watch films and we're at this point we're so used to seeing people talk on screen that I think it, it becomes easy to forget that we're watching words. Yeah. The, and, editing, the editing in general, I felt was a, you know, really important aspect to this film. The way it's edited is very creative. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot going on with that. Yeah. What about you, Mark? Did you have any specifics that um, were really special to you? Well, obviously there's images that stick out. Like I mentioned the, the Coca-Cola machine in the middle mm-hmm. of the desert always sticks out to me. 
Um, and also the scene where, you know, for me, the more absurd it is, the funnier it is. Mm-hmm. That's just a personal thing. But uh, when they the scene where they're doing a commercial and they're playing dandruff mm-hmm. <laughs> in oh. the commercial and they're in someone's head, basic, which may be where the title for the, the film came from. I'm actually, yeah. I'm actually not sure, but um, it pretty much says it all as far as like their general feelings towards uh, celebrity and commercials and whatnot. Um, and that's just very absurd to me. Just the idea of them playing dandruff and then ending uh, up in a vacuum. <laughs> A, right, exactly. a literal <laughs> vacuum, not not like a vacuum, like yeah. a space where there's no oxygen, like a literal vacuum. <laughs> a literal vacuum. And they were, yeah, so, I mean, that scene um, is, to me, like, yeah, if, if you just were going to show someone one scene in the movie, like, what is this movie about? You know, I would probably show mm-hmm. them that scene. But um, also, it just makes me laugh. I think that's one of the funnier parts. Um, yeah. And I like, I like all the breaking of the fourth wall that goes on, you know, and some of the mm-hmm. questions they ask, like, almost directly to the camera. Yeah. And, and like, when the, you know, the filmmakers come in and talk to them and stuff like that. I like that kind of stuff, too. See, I'd like to just... So, so do you think that that was something that was written into the script? Or do you think that that was a decision that happened on the day? Because, See, like... It, it was so subtle and, yeah. and unsensational. Like, I, I if someone said that they just forgot to turn off the camera, I would have believed it. Like, nothing, like, like so there's this one part where, where we briefly touched on it before, where you actually see uh, Jack Nicholson and Bob Rafelson come, come in and they start talking to, I believe it's um, Peter Tork about violence. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a scene where he hits a woman and then, you know, uh, starts to say, is it all right that I'm hitting this woman? I don't know if that's good for my image. <laughs> And like, you know, I, 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 on one hand, like I could see how that fits the theme, but on the other, I could totally just see that being, yeah, just the, the, someone left a camera rolling and they saw it and were like, oh, this is actually a great little scene. Let's just leave it in the movie, you know? And that's the thing. It is a type of movie where you, you can leave that in. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that in and, you know, people will just assume it's part of the, the film, uh, but it really could go either way. That's a good point. I always, I always saw that as being scripted, but um, now yeah. you mentioned well, it. Well, it probably you know, was, it, but like. It is, it is done so subtly though. Yeah. It's interesting how it, how it kind of develops. Um, so that's a good point, you know, it, it, and I think that's also part of its, the movie's strength is that you you almost don't know what's real, what's not. You never know from one second to the next what's going to happen. Yeah. Because um, they just kind of end up in different situations, different scenarios. Um, they could be in the desert. They could be on a commercial set, you know. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's just a... One, one, thing that, one thing that I was thinking about, because in, in my research, I did, it did look like Obviously, you said they. I think they were like smoking weed or whatever, and talked about this for a weekend. And then I think Jack Nicholson supposedly, supposedly, and supposedly <laughs> Jack Nicholson wrote a lot of this movie while on LSD. Um, but what was interesting to me with this movie, as opposed to a lot of you know, like when when, when you watch a movie like The Trip, which which mm. we hit on a little bit earlier, which is a Roger Corman movie um, with Nicholson. Yeah, um, you get that that's a movie that's about a drug experience. And it feels like a drug experience, whereas this movie, to me, didn't, despite how psychedelic it was, didn't feel like a drug experience. It felt more like a psychotic break. Mm-hmm. You know, like like someone who just hit a certain level of existential dread where their mind quit on them, which which was really interesting in, in that culture because a lot of, for me, a lot of the, the, the movies that deal with psychedelia, I, I love them. Like, I'm a huge fan of that genre, and, and I've probably said it at least once before, but I'll say it again. Like, Fear and Loathing is probably one of my top five favorite movies of all time despite the fact that that's not from that era you know like terry gilliam and, and it feels like it is <laughs> it, it, fe- it feels like it is um and, but like fear and Louis, and as well as the book i'm a huge Jimi hendrix fan like that that whole era of this psychedelic art i love but there's also a certain level of cheesiness where now you know you'll have this kind of navel gazing thing where people will be like you know like wow man like what's real what's not real and, and there's this kind of like talking about it that feels almost like 
as someone who's not in that trip at that moment, a, a little goofy to watch. But this movie kind of avoided that for me just because the yeah. questions that it was asking didn't feel like someone sitting around smoking a joint asking stupid questions it felt like people who were genuinely like feeling this intense (laughs) dread of the world and asking very real questions about their place in it that's Um, exactly the word i was going to use genuine it feels it it feels genuine it feels like thoughtful you know it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like oh we just rambled into a tape recorder and this is what it is i mean maybe that was part of it but Mm -hmm. maybe that was the the springboard the launching off pad but but uh the film itself is very you know it's it's very deep and Heart, heartfelt, genuine, definitely. Um, yeah. I feel all those things, yeah. Yeah, sad. There's something very, you know, kind of sad about it that you can't quite For place. Sure. But, For sure. Yeah. But it's also a fun movie, which is odd. And um, mm-hmm. part of why I like it so much, because it does, it has fun with its, uh, with its deep, you know, existential ideas. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, just to conclude... Uh, Jeremy, what, what would you like to say about, uh, about our little movie head here? I would say go see head, uh, go in with as few expectations as possible, which of course it will be difficult at this point because you just listen to us talk about it for <laughs> half an hour. But if somehow you still haven't seen it at the end or, of this, <laughs> or if you've seen it a while ago, mm-hmm. um, rewatch it. Cause it's, rewatch it, yeah. as I said, you know, as with any good cult film, um, this one, you know, you can watch it. It has many layers mm-hmm. to it um, and very interesting visuals. And it's a film that can be enjoyed over and over. You can, you know, revisit it uh, as many times as you want. So yeah. A real hidden uh, gem. Definitely a hidden for, gem. For sure. For sure. And you don't have to be a Monkees fan because neither me or Jeremy no. <laughs> are really uh, a fan. But we, you know, I do enjoy their music. Um, I'm not opposed to it or anything. Uh, but for me, oddly enough, I would say the music in this movie is probably my favorite um, mm-hmm. of, of what I've heard from them. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, well, this has been our second part of our series, Rock and Reel, cult music films of the 60s and 70s. Thank you very much for listening to Cult Movie Cult. You can find us on iTunes and Podbean, as well as on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, please feel free to reach out at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. Also, if you have any uh, potential series that you'd like us to do on the show, any ideas for series, that'd be great. Um, And you can join us next time when we will be moving on to 1975 and The Who with their musical opus, Tommy. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.